please turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 32 for our Old Testament scripture reading this morning. Perhaps one of the most beloved Psalms in the Psalter, one that speaks of the blessing that we have and the forgiveness of sins, something that Paul himself will turn our hearts and attention to this morning in our sermon text. Psalm chapter 32. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groanings all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord, and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy all you upright in heart. Now turning with me to 2 Corinthians for our sermon text this morning, a New Testament reading. We will consider the tail end of chapter 1 and the first 11 verses of chapter 2. Second Corinthians chapter 1, beginning in verse 23. This is Paul writing under inspiration of the Spirit. He says, But I call God to witness against me, that it was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth. Not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, for you stand firm in your faith. For I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you, for if I caused you pain, who is there to make me glad but the one whom I have pained? So I wrote as I did, so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. For I felt sure of all of you, that my joy would be the joy of all of you. For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. Now, if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me in some measure, not to put it too severely, but to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough, so that you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him 
or else he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. And so I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. This is why I wrote that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan. We are not ignorant of his designs. This is God's word. Let us go before the Lord in prayer. Our gracious God and Father, we do thank you for the reading of your word. This morning we confess that clear though your word may be, uh, we, uh, on account of our own finite minds and sinful hearts, need uh, that clarity to be illuminated to us by your Spirit's work. And so we ask that your Spirit would bless the preaching of your word uh, this morning, that we might know uh, those things that are being said here, that we might be faithful uh, to walk in your ways and keep your commands. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. I think we have a simple question before us this morning. Why is it that we practice church discipline? What's the point of it all? I think for many of us, it's not something we are used to seeing. I think in a lot of churches, particularly in broader evangelicalism, it's something of a foreign concept. In fact, I think if we were to be honest, even for the most uh, devout, staunch, die-in-the-wool Presbyterians that are here among us, uh, we might confess that uh, the practice of church discipline might sound kind of mean, might be kind of tough. But as we think through the New Testament, we recognize that our Savior himself talks about it, Matthew chapter 18, where he gives that process for what happens when somebody has sinned against you, and then what happens uh, if that person who has sinned against you refuses to repent, Christ uh, makes no bones about it. That if there is no repentance, after a long process of dealing with the person in private and then bringing somebody else along uh, by uh, your side to try to convince them to amend their ways, Ultimately, if they still refuse, then it is to be told to the church, and the church is to exclude them from their membership. It's painful. It's difficult. It's hard. It's not something that you would probably hear taking place at the local Kiwanis Club or your local uh, book club meeting, that there is a process to deal with uh, recalcitrant uh, mem- members. This is, this is something of a giant horse pill to swallow when we think about the New Testament church. It seems to run contrary to the commandment uh, to love and the, the commandment to, to forgive and things like that. So I think it would do us well. Uh, to think about what it is that Paul is talking about here and how this fits within the broader paradigm which we understand the Christian life to take place. We recognize that, that Paul has actually uh, already spoken about this once with Corinth. Uh, if you recall in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, uh, with a different, uh, different case, actually, there was a man who was uh, sleeping with his stepmother uh, and boasting about it, being unrepentant. And Paul says, this person must be dealt with in a matter of church discipline for the sake of Christ's church. What are you doing, Corinth, by not handling this? So I think we have to recognize that church discipline is one of the duties of the church. In fact, within the Reformed tradition, uh, we find that it's one of the three hallmarks of a faithful church. You have the preaching of the word, the faithful administration of the sacraments, and the proper exercise of church discipline. And it's that, that third aspect that we don't spend a lot of time thinking about. And this morning, this passage does not ever address every facet of church discipline, but it does address this one very important sliver. Why is it that we practice it? 
apart from the fact that it's been commanded to us by Christ. Why is it that we do this? What we find this morning is that Corinth has actually botched yet another church discipline case. So in some ways, we, we somewhat learn by a negative example. Um, but here, Paul models very carefully one of the purposes of church discipline. So I'd like to take this in uh, two large segments, uh, two phases. First, we'll consider that of what we might call pain. And that's from chapter 1, 23 to 2, 4. And then verses 5 to 11 in chapter 2, we might call pardon. It's two, two, two sections here. Up through 2, 4, we'll call it pain. And then 2, 5 to 11, we'll call it pardon. And then we'll consider the import that this carries for Christ's church today. Now, if you recall where we last left in, this, uh, in our, uh, this letter last week, again, this is a very occasional letter. There's, this is written for a, uh, a very specific set of circumstances, so we have to pay careful attention to why Paul is writing, because uh, as I mentioned before, you almost feel like you're in the midst of a pinball game. You're the ball stuck in the midst of an arcade as Paul writes, being uh, uh, jarred along from one topic to the next, but there is a certain method to, uh, to his madness, as it were. If you recall, uh, as we've been dealing with, Paul has had to defend his delay. Why is it that he has not come to Corinth? And part of it, as we saw over the past two weeks, Paul has said the reason for his delay was in part unintentional, right? There, those afflictions that, he, that beset him uh, and that befell him in Ephesus caused a certain change of plans. It didn't change God's eternal plans, uh, but it certainly, from Paul and Corinth's perspective, changed uh, their plans where Paul had to, uh, in one sense, take a rain check. It's kind of what happens when you have several groups of people out to try to kill you. But now Paul adds yet another reason for why his delay. If for the past chapter or so, he's been uh, talking about the, the unintentional reasons why he's delayed his visit. Now he brings this second feature in, unintentional reason why he has purposely delayed. Long story short, Corinth is acting like a giant baby. Paul doesn't give a lot of details, and so there's a lot to this that we don't know, but at least uh, we can know uh, the broad contours of what is going on. As It seems as though at some point since writing 1 Corinthians, one of its members began to criticize some facet of Paul's ministry some facet of his authority. In chapters 10 and following, we'll find that there were those who were criticizing Paul, saying that he wasn't actually the best leader. He's actually a pretty poor public spokesman. Um, he's not the guy that Corinth wanted, Corinth that really boasted in its rhetorical skills. Corinth that bo- boasted in this celebrity status. Here is Paul that doesn't fit the image of what it is that they're looking for in a leader, in a pastor. And so one of its members began to criticize Paul's ministry and began to stir up a vocal minority to begin criticizing Paul's own preaching and the message that he had been given. Now, Paul never elaborates on the particulars of what was said, but it was apparently serious enough for Paul to have made an unplanned trip to Corinth prior to the writing of 2 Corinthians, after the writing of 1 Corinthians, to handle this situation. Again, Paul's ministry uh, is at stake. It's not Paul's ego that's at stake. If there's a rejection of Paul's message, there is a rejection of the gospel. And now there's been a vocal minority that has come forward and has caused to call Paul's motives, Paul's preaching, Paul's ministry into question. So Paul has to come and address it face to face. And it is a massive shipwreck of a meeting. 
Paul is left with egg on his face. Paul, Paul just has to walk away from it all. It's a total disaster. You see this here in uh, 123, again in chapter 2, 1, Paul repeats on a couple of cases. Paul says, I've determined not to come to you again like that. In other words, he's making this subtle reference to this, this painful visit that he had to give uh, to the church at Corinth, where he had to address very serious issues and something uh, where the meeting ended in a total disaster. By a human perspective, it seemed to be a total failure. As Paul Though he had done nothing wrong, you find that throughout this letter, Paul doesn't apologize for any wrong that he had done, but Paul does have to walk away with egg on his face. I think many of us recognize when we get in the midst of a particular spat, particularly maybe with a friend or a spouse, that sometimes the argument gets so intense that you just have to step away for a little bit in order just to clear the air so you can come back and reckon with the situation. This is exactly what's going on with Paul and Corinth. There's a massive blow-up. This is a relationship on the rocks, and Paul feels that the best thing he could do is just step away for time. So he leaves. He says, after thoughtful deliberation, I thought it was best to give space before trying yet again to repair the breach. However, it seems as though this minority saw Paul as something of a, of a pitiful tyrant. If you look at 2 Corinthians chapter 10, for instance, um, uh, Paul will make reference to some of these accusations where they say, ah, well, his, yeah, his letters are weighty and strong, but his personal presence is un, uh, unimpressive. It seems as though that the uh, uh, part of the accusations were, here's a guy who can't handle a confrontation face-to-face, so he writes these letters with really big words that we can't understand uh, to try to manipulate and control the situation. This is one of the reasons why Paul keeps saying over and over again, he says, what you get in writing is who I am in person. There is no dissonance between these two. I'm not trying to manipulate you. In fact, he says here, I'm not trying to lord or rule anything over you. I'm not coming to you as a tyrant. I'm coming to you as a fellow believer, even though Paul himself has in uh, this particular office where he does have uh, a certain uh, care uh, and governance over them. Paul says, I call God as my witness. This is legal testimony. You can see how the, the, the conversation has escalated because all throughout this passage, Paul keeps using uh, legal courtroom language. I'm calling God as my witness against me. I'm not here to lord anything over you. I am not here to be a tyrant. I am your servant. Right? This is the language of, of a loving father that doesn't want to discipline their kid, but the spoiled brat just leaves the parent with no choice. Right? This is exactly what's going on. Corinth is being stubborn. Corinth is being rebellious. And Paul says, look, I, I don't want it come to, the, to come to this. This is going to hurt me a lot worse than it hurts you, right? Uh, as we might have heard uh, from our parents uh, as a kid. Paul says, I'm, I'm not here to exasperate you. Me and my fellow workers, Timothy and Silas, we're here for your joy. In fact, Paul says, you are our joy. What would happen if we caused the source of our joy so much pain? We'd be left with no one to comfort us. And so Paul's being very careful to try to stitch back together this tattered relationship. Paul says, why would we want to cause you unnecessary pain? So Paul's visit was a total disaster, and so Paul had to walk away for a time, and perhaps while he was still in Ephesus, he wrote them a really strongly worded, uh, tear-stained letter. Now this letter we do not have in uh, the New Testament. But Paul references this letter several times throughout 2 Corinthians. 
Uh, here he references it on at least three occasions. I wrote to you previously, he's not speaking of 1 Corinthians, he's speaking of some lost letter between 1 and 2 Corinthians, uh, telling the church what it is that they need to do. Basically, this is attempt uh, 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 number two to try to reckon with the situation. Paul had tried to meet with them in person. Uh, it was a total disaster. So now Paul writes this tear-stained letter saying, this is what needs to happen. You have to discipline this particular uh, rebel rouser. You have to do it. It is required. And of course, it's not like sending an email where you can hear back within the next you know, 24 to 48 hours. Paul writes a letter from Ephesus in Asia Minor and has Titus send that letter to Corinth in southern Greece, and then he has to wait on pins and needles for their response. Paul will actually talk about in chapter 7 the the great anxiety this causes him, even as he has these other missionary opportunities elsewhere. The gospel doors opened in Troas, as we'll see next week. Uh, He'll find out that he gets no rest. Even though there's these great opportunities in these other churches, all he can think about is how is Corinth going to respond to this tear-stained letter? But we see here in verses 3 and 4 of chapter 2, he says, it's the reason I wrote. I'm, I'm not, it's a painful letter. It's a severe letter. It's a strongly worded letter. But it's not given, its intent is not to cause you pain. Its intent is to restore the joy and the fellowship that has been broken by this rebel leader. But in order for restoration to take place, you just can't pretend that it doesn't exist. Sin has to be dealt with. The ringleader would have to be disciplined because he has divided the church. But now as we look at verses 5 to 11, we find that something surprising has transpired. The man has, in fact, repented. Probably not something that we would see coming, right? Usually you would expect something like this that would lead to the, the, the splintering of the church, the formation of you know, uh, you know, second, you know, uh, the second church of Corinth or something like that. Uh, where the minority uh, ends up splintering away. But it turns out that the, the, the Corinth comes to their senses. They, they execute discipline. The man is disciplined. But however, uh, that discipline informed excommunication. The man was excluded from the church for he had refused to repent. But now he's been overwhelmed by sorrow coming to his senses on the, the, the harm that he has caused. And now we've reached a new problem. Now Corinth won't receive him back into fellowship. The majority has taken action. That's what Paul is talking about. The majority here in verse 6. The, the, the bulk of the church has gotten together and they executed this form of church discipline. They dealt with the problem at hand. Paul says in verse 5, it's not to put a too, too fine of a point on it, but the guy has caused the congregation more pain than he has caused me. Right? He has caused the church split by his gossip, by his slander. And so Corinth had taken Paul's letter to heart. They excommunicated the guy, but again, verses 5 to 11 tells us that this individual has, in fact, repented. But now Paul finds himself in this awkward situation because now he has to defend the rabble-rouser, the repented rabble-rouser, the the guy who had spoken so ill of him has now repented and wants back in the church, and now Corinth won't let him back in. They're keeping him at arm's length. And now the guy is fretting and sorrowing over his particular situation. This is, in one sense, a really immature congregation that doesn't know what to do with church discipline. Think of the irony of all this. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, they refuse to discipline a guy who is sleeping with his stepmother, and they do nothing about it. 
Now they have actually dealt in church discipline with a guy, but the guy has repented, but now they won't deal with that either. They can't seem to get anything right. Now the pendulum has swung in the opposite direction, right? In the first instance, in 1 Corinthians, they refused to remove an unrepentant sinner, but now in this latter instance, they have refused to receive a repentant sinner. This is a church that has to retake the test all over again. What is the purpose of church discipline? And Paul says very clearly, the congregation has punished the man. They have, they have done the deed, but the perp- it has accomplished its purpose. The man has repented. And so Paul says the response is they are to forgive, to comfort, and to welcome him back. The action has done the trick. Verse 7, the guy has mourned over his sin, but now you're actually causing him to fall into excessive sorrow. Because now you are being unforgiving. Here stands a sinner, mourning over his very sin, and here is the church of the Lord Jesus Christ refusing to offer comfort to those seek, to a man seeking pardon. And now Paul is stuck in this really, I think, somewhat awkward position of defending the man, the very man who had attacked him. Paul says, this is what you've got to do. Verse 8, I beg you, reaffirm your love for him. The language of reaffirm is yet, yet again legal language. Translated in other, uh, other versions is ratify. In other words, this is, a, this is a formal process that they're supposed to do. Just as there is a public censure expelling this guy from the church because um, he had done what he had done without repentance, now that he has repented, he is to be publicly brought back. But Paul insists the manner in which he is to be brought back It's not just a reluctant, oh yeah, yeah, come back, sit in the back row. Don't talk to any of us. We're we're going to hang this sin over your head like the sword of Damocles, and you better not mess up again. It's not what Paul says. Paul here is looking towards a wholehearted restoration of the sinner. Doesn't simply say, welcome him back, but put him on probation. Welcome him back, but keep him at arm's length. Welcome him back, but hold his past sins over him. How many of us do that even in our personal relationships, be it with siblings or spouses, where in the midst of an argument you decide to bring up past sins, past wrongs, in an attempt to leverage the situation? Paul says, no, sir. This is not what we do. Paul here is modeling what forgiveness ought to look like. You think what Jesus, what what, 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 um, uh, Peter says, When he asked Jesus, Lord, how many times should I offend that that guy who keeps sinning against me? Seven times? Is that enough? Keeping the ledger? Jesus, oh, not seven. Seventy times seven. Not saying that the ledger now increases to 490 times. But the idea is that even those same sins, if there is repentance and there there is an attempt at trying, when they ask forgiveness, you pardon them. Isn't that what we do every Sunday? Every day, as the Lord tells us to pray daily, forgive us our debts. Every week when we come to confess our sins before the Lord, how many of us are are rummaging through our mind how we have fallen into the same sin yet again? How disappointing, how discouraging it is to think, I I have failed my Savior yet again. And, And we pray for the Lord's pardon. We're given that assurance of pardon. 
As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. But how many of us are like um, that miserable steward who, after having been forgiven, turns around and exacts vengeance for those who have wronged him just for the slightest infraction? So Jesus says we're to pray, forgive us our debts even as we forgive our debtors, those who have sinned against us. See, Paul here is modeling what forgiveness looks like. The very thing uh, that we hear week in and week out on the gospel, we are called to model towards one, another's, uh, t- towards one another to those outside the church who have sinned against us when they've repented, and also here to those inside the church when they have sinned against us. I think it's also worth noting, just as a side note, um, that here is a man who is excommunicated, and he was not beyond the grace of God. Here's a man who was excluded from the church, and yet, because he repented, he was brought back. See, forgiven is not just a bumper sticker that we have on the back of our car. This is something that shapes the whole of the Christian life. Christ calls us to pursue reconciliation. What is it that Jesus said? He says, when when you're going to, to present your offerings and you remember that you have sinned against someone? Is that what Jesus says? No. Uh, He says, if you remember if somebody has something against you, not just if you have something against somebody else, but but before you give your offering, you know somebody has something against you, you go and you try to make it right before you even give your offering. In other words, the Christian should be proactive in pursuing reconciliation. Not just kind of throwing your hands back in the air going, well, it's on them. I know they've got something against me, but I'm just not going to do anything about it. No, in fact, if we can summarize the theme of 2 Corinthians, it is this, reconciliation. This is the whole thing Paul is moving towards. This whole letter is moving us towards 2 Corinthians chapter 5, the great chapter on reconciliation between God and man. And here, Paul is modeling what it looks like even in the life of a church that is on the rocks. What does reconciliation look like? How are we to pursue those who have sinned against us when they don't repent? And how do we pursue reconciliation when they do? And here is, here is a textbook example, quite literally, of how the church should act. We pursue reconciliation. We do not pretend that reconciliation is not needed. It's what I call sloppy agape, right? You don't just sit, sit around and pretend like somebody hasn't sinned against you. Now, we bear with people in long-suffering, right? There's a difference between that and and just long-suffering and giving people time to work through those things and being patient with them. But that's a a far cry from saying, "Uh, well, it's not a big deal. We we have to deal with the fact of, of, of sin and fractured relationships, not by pretending they don't exist, not by not talking about them, but by talking about it in love. Paul says, be angry, but do not sin. Don't let the sun go down on your wrath. Be kind and tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as Christ forgave you. You deal with sin, but the goal, the the hopeful stated purpose, the particular view that we have in mind is reconciliation and restoration. It might not happen, but that's the disposition we have to maintain, how difficult it is. In fact, I think it's one of the most difficult dispositions one has to maintain as a believer when they're willing to extend forgiveness 
to a party that has sinned against them, and yet the other party refuses to acknowledge any wrongdoing on their part. Think of how painful that must be to not get bitter and to maintain that posture of wanting to forgive and continuing to offer the prospect of forgiveness on the condition of repentance. And yet it's still never coming to fruition. That is, in my opinion, one of the most difficult things that a Christian has to do. Because we see that time and time again. That sometimes there are people who will not confess any wrongdoing. But our disposition, even when wrong, is to long for reconciliation. To pray for those who despitefully use you. To bless and not curse, as Christ says. To be willing to forgive, even in the face of great hostility. And this means if reconciliation does happen, God's grace is, is poured out and, and, and the great balm uh, comes and brings healing to that fractured relationship, that we don't keep a ledger in our sock drawer of their past sins so that we can hang it over their head at a future occasion. As far as the east is from the west, it's our Savior deals with our sins. It's how we are to deal with those who sin against us. So Paul says we need to be quick to restore the repentant sinners. Why? And I think this is the driving point he's getting home here in verse 11. He says, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan. Because we're not ignorant of Satan's designs. In other words, there's nothing in this world more that Satan would want to have than a church that boasts in its own righteousness and yet fails to forgive freely. Paul says here that Satan's design is to keep Christians from extending forgiveness to those who have sinned against them. That is Satan's design. Behold, Satan prowls about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And one of the great blessings that Christ has given the church is the unity of the church, the unity of the faith, that we have been baptized and bought by the blood of Christ and and made a single body, even though we come from different uh, ethnicities, uh, tax brackets, uh, tribes, clans, uh, different parts of the world. How many of y'all thought a year ago that you would have a good old boy from Florida as your pastor here in the Pacific Northwest? We've all been brought together by the blood of Christ. We're baptized into one, and Satan's design is to fracture that unity. And so Paul says we are not ignorant of his schemes. That does not mean do not ever exercise church discipline. Do not pretend that it's never happened. But the fact is that the purpose of discipline is not a form of retribution. This person has wronged me, therefore I am going to heap the whirlwind upon them. I'm going to try to rally all my social clique in the church against this particular individual so that we shut them out just as if we were in you know, the eighth grade lunch table. That is not the purpose of church discipline. It's why we confessed our faith together on church censures. Christ has given a kingdom, and yes, there are laws to that kingdom, and those who have violated those laws if they continue unrepentantly are excluded from the visible kingdom of Christ. There is the center ultimately of excommunication. But if they have repented, they are to be brought back in and restored to full fellowship with one another. And to fail to do either one of these is to fall prey to Satan's schemes. To either let Christ's church run amok uh, in, in, in impurity and filth, 
by promoting sin or by fracturing the church by failing to promote the pardon of sin and the free forgiveness that is found in the Lord Jesus Christ. One of the quickest ways to destroy a church is to forget that we too are sinners in need of a Savior. Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast in anything except the cross of Christ. Saint's design is to leave a fractured church in his wake. So the gossip comes, the slander arises, as we see here in 2 Corinthians. But there is a way forward. And that way forward is not a church split. On the part of the slanderer, repentance is required. On the part of the offended, there is the requirement of forgiveness and love if the offender has confessed their sins. How easy it is to fall into either side of the ditch, just like Corinth has. First Corinthians, they failed to deal with sin. Now in Second Corinthians, they failed to deal with a repentant sinner. See, the forgiveness of sins is not just a legal fiction. It is the great promise for believers, one that plays itself out even in our daily relationships, as individuals and in our corporate relationships with one another. When we speak of church discipline, there are three goals that we've confessed this morning in the confession of faith. First and foremost is Christ's honor. Christ has commanded it. This is how his kingdom is to be run. Secondly is the church's purity, that she should be holy. But the third goal, still important, is the restoration of the offender, if at all possible. There's no restoration without repentance, of course. But if the person has demonstrated true and godly sorrow, there is no reason not to restore them to full communion. See, there's that ever-present danger in forgetting the honor that is due Christ by letting sin run, run rampant in the church. But there is that equal danger of keeping sinners at arm's length when they want to do, when all they want to do is to be restored. How can we remember when it comes to discipline, you can't have discipleship without discipline. And we're called to be disciples. And discipline, as we saw earlier in our confession of faith, excommunication is not only the only form of discipline, there's also the admonition, the preaching of the word that reminds us of our sins week in and week out. That's the first step to remind us, oh yeah, I have wronged somebody. I need to go and make this right. Let's be proactive in doing this as the people of God. Christ disciplines for us for our own good, even through the preaching of the word, so that we might be conformed more and more to his image. Church discipline reminds us that Christ cares that we grow up even more than we care about growing up from time to time. Isn't that what discipline is? If you're having to pronounce a censure, it's saying Christ cares for your good. And there's the call to repentance. We care for your growth. And we long for you to be restored. But here we find, above all things, as Paul says, the goal, I should say above all things, Christ's honor and the church's purity is important as well. But here, one of the goals of discipline is not retribution. It's not having a vindictive spirit. If we're doing that, we're doing it wrong. The purpose of church discipline, one of the goals of church discipline, is not retribution, but restoration. Let us pray.
Our gracious God and Father, we do thank you for your word, and we ask that as uh, your word shines on our heart, that you would expose those areas where we need to confess our sins as individuals. We ask that you would give us the the grace and the courage uh, to seek out those whom we've offended, uh, to seek their pardon, and that you would give us the grace to extend repentance to those who have sinned against us, that we might be a church that delights in the forgiveness of sins, forgiveness that comes from you, but forgiveness that we would gladly bestow on others and seek from others in areas where we have wronged. Make us a people of grace, we pray. Uh, We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.